Welcome to WORT's Weekend Review, a collection of our favorite stories from our nightly news show on the mighty WORT 89.9 FM, community-powered radio broadcasting from Bedford Street in Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dylan Brogan. This week, Wisconsin's recently enacted right-to-work law has been struck down by a Dane County judge. But will it last? Marquette Law School professor Paul Sukunda explains why he thinks it's unlikely. The argument here is that a right-to-work law compels one private party, the union, to give their property or services to another private party here, uh, the non-paying employees, and that's a compulsion that has to be assessed under the taking clause. If this follows uh, in any way the same uh, route as the Act 10 litigation we saw a couple of years ago, what will likely happen is the circuit court itself will probably deny the motion to stay. It will then be appealed to the Court of Appeals, the the state intermediate appellate court, which will likely stay uh, the court's decision. And then eventually, through some additional procedural uh, moves, it will make its way to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. When it gets to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, all likelihood is that it will be overturned. Uh, the decision will be overturned because there's a five to two uh, conservative majority right now on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Best guess is they're unlikely to agree with Judge Faust's decision. In other legal news around the state, a Milwaukee law firm announced this week that it is suing the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction over what it says is an issue of religious freedom and equal protection. WRT's Darian Lehman has the story. At the center of an ongoing dispute involving school choice and religious freedom is St. Augustine, Inc., a school located in the Freeze Lake School District in Richmond, Wisconsin. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, a law and policy center focusing on limited government and education reform issues, has filed suit against the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction on behalf of St. Augustine and one of the families that sends their kids there. C.J. Safer is an attorney with Will. And the family's been denied the free transportation that they're entitled to because Freeze Lake and the Department of Public Instruction have um, unconstitutionally uh, declared that St. Augustine is a uh, Catholic school. Safer says the original dispute emerged around who is responsible for transporting children to private schools. In Wisconsin law, parents that send their children to private schools are entitled to free transportation from the school district under certain uh, criteria. St. Augustine, they believe all of their kids should get free transportation uh, in the Freeze Lake School District. The problem, uh, according to Freeze Lake, is that Freeze Lake is citing a provision under state law which says you have to share transportation districts with St. Gabriel because both of you are a uh, Catholic school and a uh, member of the archdiocese. St. Augustine disputes that characterization. They say, uh, yes, we do have some uh, Catholic teachings at our school, but according to our bylaws, uh, we're independent. Uh, We have a board of directors. Uh, We're not controlled by the archdiocese. We are in no way similar to uh, St. Gabriel. But as the disagreement between Freeze Lake and St. Augustine came to an impasse, the state superintendent of public instruction was called in to arbitrate the dispute. Safer says the Department of Public Instruction overstepped its bounds by making its own determination on St. Augustine's Catholicness. Superintendent Evers uh, took it one step further. His office made uh, several inquiries into to St. Augustine, kind of 
trying to figure out how Catholic the school was. And they said that, uh, you know, because St. Augustine uh, accepted the uh, Catholic religious tradition and they had some Catholic teachings, they would be a uh, Catholic school. And yes, they indeed had to share a transportation area with St. Gabriel. So we filed a, a lawsuit against uh, Superintendent Evers and Freeze Lake uh, on several grounds. Um, kind of the, the biggest one is a First Amendment violation for excessive entanglement between church and state because we don't believe that the government should be deciding who or what is Catholic under Wisconsin uh, Supreme Court precedent. The only thing that the government's allowed to do is look at um, legal texts of saying, what is the uh, Articles of Incorporation of the school? And the other Articles of Incorporation for a school uh, for St. Augustine is incredibly clear, and it's an independent school. Freeze Lake School District and the Department of Public Instruction could not be reached for comment by airtime today. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Darian Lehman. In city government news this week, Madison Mayor Paul Soglin announced that he wants to create a citizen task force to study a city government reform initiative proposed by members of the Common Council. The proposed changes would take certain powers away from the mayor and give them to the council president. Soglin opposes the measure and says changes this significant should involve public discussion and input. Several city alders agree. WRT's Cameron Bren has this report. The city government reform initiative proposed by Alders Mark Clear and David Ahrens makes three significant changes to the balance of power between the mayor and the common council. The proposal would replace the board of estimates with the finance committee. The members of that committee would be appointed by the city council president instead of by the mayor. The mayor would no longer be the chair of that committee. Instead, the committee would elect a member to that role. In addition, the council president would also make other city alder committee appointments, leaving only citizen appointments to the mayor. Mayor Soglin says the changes could have a significant impact on the city and should go through a larger public discourse phase before being adopted. The goals of the Citizen Task Force would include a much broader examination of the structure of city government. Soglin's resolution calls for a study on how the changes could impact low-income and racial minority communities, a comparison to the structure in similar-sized cities, all the time commitment and compensation, size and cost of council staff, and many more aspects of city government structure. Aldermark Clear says that what he is proposing and what the mayor is proposing are not necessarily incompatible. And I don't think they are fundamentally incompatible. It's not like one is an alternative to the other. Uh, I think that our reforms could go forward and then the Citizen Task Force could look at some of the broader issues that the mayor is interested in pursuing. Alder Rebecca Campbell says she likes the mayor's proposal because any change to the structure of city government should be driven by the citizens. I think it's the right way to go about such a monumental decision um, for a community, for, for changes in governances and uh, governance structures. I think it should be led by the citizens and informed, first and foremost, by the needs of our community, the needs of the people in our community. 
and it should not be driven by some abstract desire to balance power, but actually be driven by some actual need that is not currently being met that would be better met by a restructuring of our governance system. Campbell says unlike the Clear Aaron's proposal, the mayor's puts everything up for possible changes. I like the universal nature of the mayor's proposal saying, you know, everything is up for grabs, including the size of the mayor's staff, including the executive power of the mayor. Um, Does it make sense for the mayor to have all that executive power if we're looking at balancing power in order to better serve the needs of our community? You know, should some of that maybe be shifted over the council? And if so, what would be the consequences of that? I mean, it's it's such a deep subject with so many potential uh, consequences that would ripple throughout um, city government and the community that it really deserves, you know, a year or two long study with massive public input and not just an ordinance that sort of got sprung on us like the Clear Errands ordinance changes did. Campbell says what she finds troubling about the Clear Errands proposal is that it is less democratic. The mayor is elected by the whole city. Um, the last election, he got 72 percent of the, of the vote. That's a huge mandate. And he got elected um, based on policy ideas he had, plans he had for the city. Um, and because he was elected on all those ideas, it's up to him to carry those out and to have the city government apparatus do the things that he said he wanted to do that the people of the city uh, supported him to do. And in order to do that, he needs to have some control of staff and um, he has an idea, and, you know, I'm saying he because it's the, literally this mayor, but he or she in the future would have an idea of who would be the best people to help inform those um, policy initiatives and, uh, and ideas. Claire argues that his proposal is actually more democratic and not less. Well, that doesn't make it less democratic. I mean, all of us are democratically elected, and... You know, to take that analogy to its ridiculous extreme, then, you know, the president of the United States should be making all these decisions. No, we have distributed government, and one of the ways we distribute government is by having people who are elected within uh, small districts so that that people are represented as close as possible to the people. And the council represents that. We're the closest to the people who elect us because we represent just 12,000 people. And by distributing that authority to multiple council members instead of vesting it in one person, in the mayor, uh, it's actually more democratic. Both proposals will be introduced at the council's April 19th meeting and will then go through a multi-week or even multi-month process before final action is taken. Reporting for WRT News, I'm Cameron Brent. federal appeals court ruled this week that a U.S. district judge must consider whether Wisconsin's voter ID law applies to people who face significant obstacles to obtaining identification. The American Civil Liberties Union and the National Law Center for Homelessness and Poverty filed a federal lawsuit back in 2011 to challenge the constitutionality of the law. Although it was upheld, the ACLU has continued to argue in court that the state should make an exception for eligible voters with difficulty obtaining photo IDs. 
WRT's Darian Lehman spoke with Sean Young, a staff attorney with the ACLU, about the ruling and what it means. Joining us on the phone is Sean Young, an attorney with the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. Uh, Sean, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Can you just tell us what your role was in the federal lawsuit uh, challenging Wisconsin's voter ID law? Sure. Um, I've been, along with the ACLU of Wisconsin, uh, leading the challenge against Wisconsin's voter ID law, which is one of the harshest in the country and continues to be a threat to our democracy. Um, Just this week, uh, the Seventh Circuit revived our challenge to the voter ID law and said that people who cannot get ID with reasonable efforts should be allowed to vote under the law or at least pursue their claims in court. And that is exactly what we intend to do. And so when you say they revived this case, um, how far does this go back? Yeah, so this case was filed uh, back in 2011, soon after the law uh, went into effect. We presented a substantial amount of evidence showing just how harsh this law was. Um, Up to 300,000 Wisconsin voters do not have ID. Racial minorities are twice as likely to lack ID and even the underlying documents needed to get ID. Uh, we went to trial in 2013, and the district court struck down the law in its entirety. On appeal, however, the Seventh Circuit um, overturned that decision and upheld uh, Wisconsin's voter ID law. Um, that decision, um, we appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court declined to review the case. And so we were uh, back at the district court, and at that point, we were seeking to, you know, if we were unable to strike down the law in its entirety, we wanted to be able to uh, get relief for folks who face particular difficulties getting ID. For instance, people with uh, misspellings in their birth certificates, or people who are not able to get their birth certificates, and people who are missing uh, things like Social Security cards. Um, we also sought to expand the types of IDs that would be acceptable for voting, such as technical college student IDs and veterans' ID cards. Um, The district court um, ruled against us. Um, Soon after that, though, the Wisconsin legislature partially came to its senses and allowed technical college IDs and veterans' IDs uh, to be used for voting. And the district court said that because we had lost before in the appeals court, um, we couldn't even bring our claims on behalf of the most vulnerable among us um, and seek relief just for those people. That decision is what was overturned by the appeals court this week. And so the case has been sent back down, and now we will continue to pursue our claims on behalf of these people who face particular difficulties getting ID. And what we're seeking um, for them is, uh, since at least right now we can't strike down the entire law, we're seeking to have an affidavit option so that they can vote without showing ID um, by signing an affidavit. And is that different from a provisional vote, which would require one to get a valid photo ID by the time they're counted? Uh, What is an affidavit vote? If you vote by affidavit, um, you would sign an affidavit saying you fit into um, one of the categories of people who have particular difficulties getting ID, like you have misspellings in your birth certificates, so on. Um, And then you would be given a regular ballot and you would vote on the spot. Um, No dealing or messing with provisional ballots. No need to return in three days with additional documentation, which is absurd to begin with. Um, They would be able to cast a regular ballot. 
So my understanding is that a lot of this case uh, is revolving around what constitutes a daunting obstacle uh, to obtaining an ID, right? So uh, is that a technical term? What, what, are, what are daunting obstacles? Um, you've talked a little bit about um, some of the categories you'd like to expand that to include, but um, can you just kind of uh, give us an overview of, of what's at stake there with that, with that category? Sure. Um, daunting obstacles can include things like um, having to go to the DMV multiple times, um, waiting an indefinite period for the DMV to hunt down um, your birth certificate for you. Um, a lot of people um, who you know, decide to vote often do not have time to get ID in the limited amount of time that they have before Election Day. Um, the DMV will make them wait for weeks and weeks and sometimes months um, to get their ID processed, and then they're disenfranchised. So the wait, um, the need to access DMV offices through public transportation, which is often uh, very challenging for a lot of people, especially low income, um, the need to engage with, mul with multiple different bureaucracies, each with their own sets of requirements. Um, some people have to hunt down ancient school records and, um, you know, or, or hospital records just to get the documents that they need to get ID. Um, it's, it's, it can be a very confusing labyrinth of requirements that people have to go through. And we'd submit that that is all unreasonable and no one should have to go through that just to exercise their fundamental right to vote. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about, the during the April 5th presidential primaries here in Wisconsin, we saw record turnout. Um, some are claiming this renders this whole argument moot, that, you know, people turned out um, both uh, to vote in the Democratic and the Republican primaries, and uh, they turned out in record numbers. So voter ID uh, requirements didn't keep people uh, away from the polls. What, uh, what would be your response to that argument? Um, that argument fails the basic rules of elementary logic. Um, we're talking about the people who are impoverished, the people who live on the margins of society, um, people who um, are lower income. The question is, um, the issue is that voter ID has made it much more difficult for those people to turn out to vote. So even if you know, voter turnout increased by X percent, if the increase in turnout is all from wealthier people who have always had IDs and, and have decided to vote in this election where they did vote before, it doesn't say anything about um, the people who we're concerned about. And the charge uh, that voter IDs help prevent voter fraud? I mean, that charge is uh, specious. They, the state has never provided any evidence that, you know, the pre-existing measures to deter voter fraud, um, and, and that includes stiff felony penalties and a heavy fine, that those existing measures um, haven't been able, they haven't shown any evidence that those existing measures don't work, and they haven't shown any evidence of widespread voter impersonation fraud in person, which is the only kind of fraud um, uh, voter ID laws are purportedly designed to fight. And, I, and I'd also like to put that argument in a little bit of perspective. You know, throughout our 150-year history since African Americans were given the right to vote by the 15th Amendment, almost every time governments have tried to make it harder for African-Americans to vote, they've invoked voter fraud. This is not a new argument. It's an old one. And it is the argument that was used to justify Jim Crow laws. And it's the argument that's used to being, uh, is being used to justify um, the discriminatory measures we're seeing today. 
Well, as we wrap up, um, what is the likely timeline? You said that this uh, case has been sent back down. Uh, What's going to happen next? And is there any chance at this point that the voter ID law uh, will be ruled unconstitutional in its entirety? Um, There's always that possibility. Um, The Seventh Circuit's prior ruling on that issue um, doesn't necessarily foreclose that in the future. we, uh, when this case gets sent back down, you know, we're going to evaluate all of our options, including um, whether to seek relief in time for the 2016 election. Well, we've been speaking with Sean Young, an attorney with the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. Sean, thanks so much again for being with us. Of course. It was a pleasure. professional basketball player has filed suit against the New York City Police Department after officers broke his leg during an unlawful arrest. Here's our weekly sports segment, Game On, with Elizabeth D. Novella. The New York City Police Department has been criticized for decades for its use of excessive force and racism within the ranks. The July 2014 death of New York City resident Eric Garner from a police chokehold was a catalyst for the Black Lives Matter movement. On average, New York City pays almost $50 million a year to settle cases or pay plaintiffs who have won in court on police brutality cases. These lawsuits include false imprisonment, shooting a suspect, and use of excessive force. Pro basketball player Thabo Cephalosha is the latest black man to sue the city. Last week, the Atlanta Hawks player filed a federal lawsuit against five New York City police officers. The suit alleges false arrest and excessive force. Cephalosha was arrested by New York City police outside a Manhattan nightclub last year. Police charged Cephalosha with resisting arrest and other crimes during a confrontation with police outside a nightclub last April. The police were clearing people from a bar in the street near it when Cephalosha and his teammate had verbal exchanges with an officer. The officer told the players to keep moving. Cephalosha told the officer that he could be nicer. The jabbering continued. Cephalosha must have struck a nerve when he called the police officer a midget. Soon after, the police started to arrest him. Police said he charged an officer from behind. Thabo Cephalosha explains the incident. Well, everything happened fairly quickly, you know. Um, I didn't quite understand what was going on. It was no you know, clear order on the end. So I didn't really understand, you know, why I was getting arrested or anything like that. Again, you know, they're the police and, and I wasn't going to try to resist or anything. Uh, but before I knew, you know, it went from one to three to five. And basically somebody, you know, coming from behind, kicking me in the leg and, and people pulling me on both sides and grabbing me on the neck. Uh, it was, you know, rough altercation. You know, one of the officers came from behind and kicked me in the leg. Police officers broke the basketball player's leg and tore his ligaments while arresting him. Though the Atlanta Hawks went to the playoffs, Cephalosha watched from the sidelines due to his injuries. Rather than take a plea deal, Cephalosha decided to go to a jury trial. He wanted to prove his innocence in court. He risked a year in jail if he lost the trial. A New York City jury acquitted him of disorderly conduct and resisting arrest in less than 45 minutes. The jury believed he was innocent. Here is Thabo Cephalosha talking about why he didn't take a plea deal. Because it wasn't right. It wasn't right. I didn't have to plead guilty to anything. To me, that's what it felt. You know, they wanted me to do a day of community service and basically be on probation sort of things for six months. 
after I didn't do anything and I got my leg broken. Cephalosha, who is Swiss and South African, was wearing a hoodie the night he was arrested. Cephalosha has filed a civil suit alleging that police officers arrested him arbitrarily and violated his civil rights because he is black. The federal suit also alleges that the officers filed a false report and lied on the witness stand. Cephalosha argues that the broken leg and torn ligaments had shortened his basketball career. He says he, quote, is now considered damaged goods in the sports world, end quote. Cephalosha has earned $26 million during his NBA career, so his main goal in suing the city may not be money. Unlike the majority of plaintiffs in police brutality lawsuits, Cephalosha actually has resources and fame. Police reform seems paramount to the basketball player. It's fair to say that officers that did this to me could, in, in a year from now, do this to somebody else. Is that right? Is that okay? And, you know, they were supposedly doing the job. Is that the part of their job, to do something like this to an innocent man and then to take him to trial and, and you know, have, have him risk a year in jail? Is that how it's supposed to go? And I'm just one, you know, amongst many uh, that's here uh, you know, saying that, you know, something is not right and hopefully uh, we, can, we can together come with some, uh, with some uh, changes and solutions. Despite the $50 million price tag, the lawsuit isn't simply about cash money. A settlement with the city that improved relations between police and minorities would be invaluable. As a famous civil lawyer once said, sometimes the only way a city listens is through money. At the very least, Bebo Cephalosha reminds us to hate the game and not the player. For WRT News, this is Elizabeth DiNovella. Game on. Finally this week, Tone Madison editor Scott Gordon talks to the band Dick the Bruiser. Hi, I'm Scott Gordon from ToneMadison.com. So Tony and Kevin, thank you for joining me this week. So what's kind of been going on with you guys as a band? You've kind of been kind of quiet for a while and you're you're recording a new EP, and you've got a couple of shows coming up. Just give us kind of the update, I guess. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I've been kind of holed away, uh, writing some new music. Went into Science of Sound with Ricky Reamer, Eric, here back in February, was it? Early March, I guess. Yeah, March. And recorded six songs pretty much in one day. Went back, put a couple little things on the next day, and did some mixing. And we're just sort of listening to final mix downs right now. Looking to have that, I don't know, mastered and figure out what we're going to do with it once we get it once we get it in the can, so to speak. Yeah, like you said, we got a couple of shows uh, booked up. One of them's uh, coming up on the 23rd of this month, and then another one in early June. And, you know, there may be something else. But uh, we should have that recording put together and ready to release by then, for sure. Yeah, and um, you you guys sent me f- like four of the tracks from the EP this week, and they're still unmastered, so you're not ready to put them out there. But I I did listen to them this week, and um, one thing I noticed is they sound like a lot more raw and like kind of streamy and noise rocky than anything I've done before, which I found I found that really interesting. Cool. 
Well, we took some time off. Um, I mean, Tony and I have been playing for a long time together and uh, off and on in various bands, but um, I think we started Dick the Bruiser. So we did, a, we did. I don't know if you're familiar with the um, Pelvis Quartet from years ago. Uh, that When that kind of wound down, um, Tony and I, as the rhythm section from that band, were looking to for whatever was next. And um, we just kept staring at each other and decided, you know, hey, let's just uh, make a go of this with just the two of us. And that was in, what, 2008, I think? 2008. We probably started in 2007 and started gigging in 2008. Something like that, yeah. So we've been doing it for a long time. Even, that's how Pelvis started, really, was two-piece. It was Kevin and I with some bass and drums, and then we put some sax on top of that. We played around as a three-piece for a while with Chris Maddox, and then Russell Hall joined as a guitar player. Um, so it seems like we've been doing this kind of stuff for a while. But Dick the Bruiser, since 2008, you know, I think we've consciously kept it simple. You know, we haven't really explored with loops or samples from the drums or, you know, as a drummer, me playing samples or any bells or any of that kind of stuff. We've really tried to keep the instrumentation very simple, yep. kind of lo-fi. Kevin plays with one or two, you know, one or two, one pedal for his bass, one pedal for his vocals. Right. Um, on the new record, Kevin sings everything. I don't, I don't sing any backups on that. Yeah, it's pretty stripped down. Um, but I think that the time off was, um, you know, back to your, your remark about like it's raw, uh, it's rawness. I think that came about from the time off, really. You know, we were just kind of looking, exploring uh, a lot of different angles, and uh, you know, the ones that we kept returning to the cuts that we kept returning to were the ones that made it on the EP. So, you know, they just happened to be what we felt like uh, at the time. So those are the six that kind of bubbled up. I think it might have to do with the recording too. I mean, we seriously, everything was first take pretty much. Maybe one thing or two, we started just to, just to kind of get levels or whatever, knowing that we weren't going to go very far into it. But pretty much we took if it sounded pretty good, we went with it. Um, a lot of people might think that's a demo or whatever, but uh, uh, we felt like the energy was there, and we felt good with the performances. Yeah, there's like a case to be made for just going with the kind of immediacy of something, you know, that comes out of a moment and running with It's definitely edgier and a little more spontaneous sounding, so, you know, we like it. We like it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to me because you're a man that comes from kind of kind of a post-punk background, but I feel like the DNA of that shows through a little bit more in this. You know, I guess the first time that I've kind of listened to it and thought like, oh, there's sort of like a bit of like a like a Jesus Lizard vibe almost to this baseline or something like that. Hmm. Well, it is interesting trying to get. Uh, I mean, it's pretty full sound for just one string instrument. And uh, it's it's interesting recording, you know, with Ricky, we, we literally took my uh, bass stack and put it into the shower stall. So that might have an effect on some of the uh, the capture there. Yeah, like Tony said, everything was pretty much one take. We were in and out, and we did it all in about 10 hours. And, like, do you know what you're going to title this or, or anything like that? Haven't gotten there yet, really. Yeah, we're not really sure what kind of format other than maybe downloads you know and as you know our first ep was just a 
little credit card download with a code on it, right? So uh, we're not sure what we're going to do with this. Right. Yeah. And then just for, for the reference of anyone who isn't familiar with Dick the Bruiser, the previous two EPs that you've put out are kind of now available as just like one release that you guys did as put out on, on right. Bandcamp and... Um, and, and as a CD. Yeah, there's a CD available yeah. um, that combines the two, but we think what we'll probably do is we'll split them all up into their proper format of three simple EP downloads. We'll do that for sure, but this new one, we may also do something else with it, you know. Yeah, we're talking to a couple people about some ideas. and Sure. All three of them were recorded with Ricky Reamer at Science of Sound, so there's hopefully some continuity across the three recording dates. Well, Tony Sellers and Kevin Wade, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Scott. Thanks a lot, Scott. I want my kisses back. Don't be so mean. You keep forgetting my name. I'm not Francisco, baby. I'm not James Dean. I'm not your princess of pain. I'm not your mama mia. I hold you cool. I'm not your mystery dream. Dick the Bruiser plays Saturday, April 23rd at The Frequency with Cave Curse and Transformer Loot Bag. The show begins at 7 p.m. and is 21 and up. You can hear Dick the Bruiser's previous releases, Purgatory Stories, and Severe Songs at dickthebruiser.bandcamp.com. For ToneMadison.com and WORT News, I'm Scott Gordon. That'll do it for WRT's Weekend Review. We are live from our downtown studios Monday through Thursday at 6 o'clock over on the FM dial, 89.9. You can also listen live or anytime at WRTFM.org. Thank you to our contributors this week, Darian Lehman, Elizabeth Dinabella, Cameron Bren, and Scott Gordon. Molly Stentz is the news director at WRT, and my name is Dylan Brogan. See you next week. Just keep listening to the ward. You'll know what's going on out there.